Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, as 2021 comes to an end already, we're going to revisit our interviews with two rising political stars from opposite ends of the state. Both come from immigrant families and have made history as first in their current jobs. And we'll probably be hearing more from them in 2022. Absolutely. Honey Mahogany is the head of San Francisco's Democratic Party. She's the first trans person to hold that position. Born to Ethiopian refugees, she's walked a pretty fascinating path to this political role she's in now. And Robert Garcia is the mayor of Long Beach. He is the first openly gay leader of the city. He's also the youngest ever elected to that post and the first Latino mayor there. Lots of firsts, but let's start first with Honey who started off by explaining how she came to be known as Honey Mahogany. Ooh, that's a good story. I mean, I, you know, the, the honest to God truth is that when I was a young dragling, I was struggling with finding a drag name, but um, I had some leftover makeup from when I did um, um, theater in high school and it was by Revlon and the two colors, the foundation were Honey and Mahogany. And I thought that that would be a good name. It is a good name. <laughs> I love that. Did you that toy with Mahogany really Honey? I thought about it and I was like, no, you can't have a first name longer than your last name. That's weird. Yeah. And Honey's like, I like Honey. That's good. Um, well, you were born Alpha Mulageta, is that right? Yeah. To Ethiopian parents. Um, talk to us about your childhood. Your your parents came to the States from Ethiopia, I believe, bef- a few years before you were born. Yes, they did. Um, they came here in 1979, I believe. Okay. And so were they, and tell, like, why did they come to the States? They were yeah. asylum seekers or refugees? Yeah, so my dad was actually um, a student in medical school in Greece, and he was on an Ethiopian student scholarship. And when there, there was a new regime that took over, a communist regime, um, he was a student organizer that, you know, was a part of a, a club that was against the new government. And um, they revoked his citizenship which meant that he lost his scholarship and was no longer able to stay in Greece. So he emigrated here as an asylum seeker. And then my mom came with him and they got married here in San Francisco. Wow. And you, I think, grew up in the sunset, which is uh, quite a ways from the Castro in so many ways. I know you spent a lot of time in the Castro, but what was it like growing up in, you know, on that side of town, which, you know, not so much anymore, but used to be much more conservative than the rest of the city, or at least a lot of the city. Uh, What was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was very quiet. I mean, I come from a very, well, I shouldn't say my family's conservative. They're all Democrats. And um, I would say, especially my mom is actually pretty liberal. But, um, it, you know, the, the being the child of immigrants, my parents 
um, were very religious. They, um, you know, Ethiopia has a very deep rooted um, history of Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, um, which predates European Christianity. Um, and, you know, so from that perspective, it was very conservative socially. And I was very sheltered. I mean, I think today still, I think the sunset is very sheltered from the rest of the city, even though San Francisco was this huge gay Mecca for, you know, decades before I was born, I didn't really get to experience very much of that. Um, but, you know, I, I will say I really had a great time um, as a child in the sense that I um, had lots of family who also joined my parents when they immigrated here. And we all kind of grew up together in the same neighborhood and the same building at one point. And um, I don't know, I, I, I had a really great time. That's good to hear. My dad grew up in the sunset far before you. He had a good time, too. But it was a different world in the 50s, I think, than in the 80s. Um, well, when we were researching this, we noticed you did go to Catholic school. I think more traditional Catholic schools and then a Jesuit high school. I mean, obviously, you're out now. It's, you know, you've probably come a long way on, on your journey in a lot of ways. But, like, what what were the best and worst parts about that Catholic education for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just interesting. I mean, I, I you know, obviously, there was... Uh, levels of homophobia and, you know, um, uh, things like that uh, in school. I think that that just ex exists or has existed. It's a product of its time. I don't think it had anything to do with me going to Catholic school, to be honest. Mm. Um, I actually felt, I think, the racial disparity more. I mean, I remember, what, especially in grade school, um, I went to St. Gabriel's in the sunset. I think I was like, one of the only black people at one point in the entire school, like K through eight. And then there was a biracial kid that was there. And then there was, um, I think, a Nigerian kid that came in at like sixth or seventh grade. So that actually was, I think, more of a big issue for me. Um, and then when I went to high school, I went to St. Ignatius, and um, which is also in the sunset it uh, was pretty liberal, I would say, once I got there. I mean, there were people there that were openly gay um, at the time. I don't think there was- there Those wasn't teachers or were they students? Students. There was some rumors about some teachers and that got that got a little hairy because, you know, they could be fired. I mean, you know, being in a Catholic school, a Catholic institution, um, if you were an, if you were a woman and you weren't married and you got pregnant and they found out you could be fired. I mean, there's, yeah. there's all this really, it was really strict. I will say my high school had, um, and this actually got them in trouble um, a while back, but they used to have a Glee CLC, which was basically, um, CLCs are Christian life communities, um, but the Glee CLC was, um, like a gay and les basically a gay lesbian students alliance. Oh, interesting. Um, how did yeah. you first get into drag? And I'm wondering how did your family, how did your parents uh, respond to that? How old were you? Um, I first got into drag when I was uh, in college. Uh, I de I generally um, I definitely made the choice to leave San Francisco to go to college so I could grow as a person and explore and figure out what was going on with me. And um, so that's when I came out in college. And I first got into drag when I, uh, a, my, a friend asked me to be in their film and they said, you know, I'm asking you to be in this role because you're the only guy that I think would kind of look good as a girl. Um, and um, I did it and I had a great time doing it. And I guess the rest is really history. Um, my parents, um, actually the way that I came out to my parents was that um, I wasn't, I didn't actually come out, I was outed. Um, I had a family member who had access to my I, Flickr account or 
Pixter. I don't remember what. <laughs> one of those dead photo accounts. MySpace. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, one of those things. And um, I guess I had some pictures on there of me in drag in one of the folders that I, you know, didn't even think about. And, you know, he, he found it and ended up sharing it with family members. And so they all found out that way. And that was uh, pretty traumatizing. Um, you know, my family was really hurt by that. It was very dramatic. My dad threatened to, you know, kill himself at the time. And, you know, uh, I ended up actually uh, leaving the country because um, my parents asked me to, you know, go back to, to go to Ethiopia to get away from negative influences in quotes. Um, and I knew that that wasn't going to really change anything, but I felt like I could do this for my family. And while I was there in Ethiopia, I'm actually really glad that it happened because I, you know, got to spend a lot of time with my grandmother. And, you know, while I was there really um, get to spend time in a country, you know, that I originated from. Right. And, ended up actually getting a, an internship while I was there at UNAIDS, which was really interesting. So it sounds like one of the things that kind of attracted you to the drag scene was political activism and like the fact that drag queens can play this, you know, sort of powerful, I think, role in being leaders in a community. Um, I mean, is that fair? Is that is that something that you or was this? I mean, obviously now you know, we're looking at your Zoom, you identify as she, they. So like, it's been a journey, as I said. Right. No, I mean, I I actually don't think that I did drag because it was political. Uh, although I think that I maybe kept doing it because it was political. I think I did drag because it was a way to express something that was within myself in a way that um, was available to me. And, in, in, and, and for me, drag was really a, a celebration of the feminine. And I'd, I've always been super effeminate or feminine, even as a child. And I was always told that was wrong. And, you know, to me, that was just a part of sort of this culture of misogyny and, you know, um, you know, hatred of everything feminine and of women. And I, and I admired women so much. And, you know, and I, I thought that the feminine qualities I had was, were really positive. And so drag was a way for me to celebrate that and heighten that. And um, that's why I started doing drag. And then I think that um, when I came to San Francisco and, uh, really got involved in the drag scene here, that's when I realized that drag is more than just about performing as a woman, but is actually can be about uh, broadcasting a message or making a statement and um, has a deep rooted history and activism here. Tell, tell me, is there an, like an attitude at all about a trans person doing drag? I mean, uh, you know, typically drag used to be men, you know, dressing up as women and then some women started dressing up as men, you know, for a, uh, somebody who identifies as trans. How, how does that work? Well, I would say that that's actually not true. I mean, I think that, you know, back if you look back at like Shakespearean text, you know, the word drag comes from dressed as girl. And I and I think that that is that is true and that is very literal. But I think throughout history, we've actually had um, people of uh, both genders um performing in drag. And then uh, also a lot of trans people were in, were perceived as being in drag because we didn't have the terminology around being around trans. And actually in, um, in the South, especially in the pageantry system, I think that there are people who, um, you know, get, you know, breast implants and do all these other things and are considered drag queens. But, you know, like, where does the, where is the line? I think that sometimes that that can get blurry. I think here in San Francisco, we have a, a very deep rooted history of not just trans women performing as drag queens, but also of cisgendered women performing as drag queens. And that goes back to the coquettes, um, but also certainly to people who are, you know, still around today, like um, Phonique and um, Hokumama Swamp and um, so many others um, that are, you know, cisgendered women who perform in drag. Yeah. 
And I'll, I remember moving to San Francisco and like seeing the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence for the first time and be like, oh, you can have a, a beard boom, and boom. still be like, you know. Um, so I want to talk about politics because that's, you know, our show and why you're here. So it seems like some of this came out of your activism, but also you're, you, you were a social worker um, when you were younger. And... It seems like your first real foray into like more organized politics and, and, and organizing was around the Stud Collective. Um, so this was 2016. Can you talk a little bit about that and like for people outside of San Francisco who have no idea what the Stud is? Or was. Yeah. How dare they not know? Um, so the Stud, <laughs> the Stud is, um, was, I should say, because we just recently closed due to COVID, um, San, Francisco, San Francisco's oldest um, remaining LGBT nightlife venue and... Um, yeah, uh, it was actually the first place that um, I kind of went to um, to start performing in drag here in San Francisco. Um, and one of the first places that I just sort of walked into alone uh, in terms of a gay bar. Um, it's a place that I think is responsible for a lot of um, San Francisco's drag culture and aesthetic. Um, it has been a real cultural creator and I think artistic incubator for the city of San Francisco. And, and, and I think really, you know, truly, you know, the country. Um, it uh, was threatened with closure three years ago. And, you know, unfortunately, or I should say fortunately, um, 17 of us got together and formed a cooperative and we actually created the first um, cooperative we run LGBT nightlife venue in the country. And we saved the stud from closure, took it over, revamped, uh, not really revamped it. We kept it in the same sphere that it has always been. Um, just to go back a little bit, uh, the stud um, is in the Soma, the, the South of Market. Um, the stud is in Soma, which is the South of Market, and uh, it is historically the LGBT leather district, um, which is a very, uh, I would say, like a masculine, kink-centered sort of culture. Um, but the stud was this sort of oasis where everyone was welcome, no matter what you looked like. You could be a hair fairy, you could be a drag queen, you could be a twink or a muscle Castro clone. Everyone was welcome, and so we've really made sure that that spirit remained alive. And you know, we hope to steward it for generations to come. We just need to find a new place. Well, I want to ask you a question about your new role as chair of the Democratic Party in San Francisco. What is your what's your agenda? What do you want to get done? That's a really good question. I mean, I think that the goal, you know, the San Francisco Democratic Party is really here to help um, to help really guide San Francisco voters on how to vote, right? I mean, we are elected by the people and are representative of, uh, of the city, and we take the time to really examine ballot measures and candidates and vote and endorse them, and then we send out lots of mailers. Another big part of the party, um, party's uh, duties is voter registration and really doing outreach to make sure that every um, every citizen is able and registered to vote. Um, but additionally, San Francisco has an opportunity to make some really strong political statements. I think a lot of people look to San Francisco um, for direction. Um, we are a progressive beacon, a beacon of hope. Um, people love to use the word beacon when they talk about San Francisco. Um, <laughs> Uh, right. Um, and so I think we have an opportunity to make a statement on a lot of important things that are happening, not just locally, but um, nationally and, and sometimes even internationally. And I think that the rest of the country follows. How do you think about like your sort of the two hats you wear? Right. I mean, we mentioned you're also an aide to Matt Haney. You've done a lot of like work on the ground through that and your activism and your social work. But you're also this performer. You're a singer. Like, how do you think that that side of your personality and, and personhood is helping you when you think about politics? 
Well, I mean, I think that politics is a lot like being a performer. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, reading of speeches and a lot of a lot of that. But I think also it's about connection. It's about connecting with people and um, being able to meet people people where they're at and 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 take them somewhere, right? Um, and so I think that that's what politics is. It's about it's about connecting with people, hearing their stories, and um, being able to turn those those stories into um, policy and make make sort of make their dreams come true. So I, I, I think that, yes. Oh, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just taking okay. a breath to get ready to answer my next question. <laughs> You're so polite. You'd like, as soon as sorry, you heard me, no, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to, to, to cut you off. But we are getting short on time. That's it. Yeah, no worries. Um, I would do want to ask you about RuPaul's Drag Race. You were on, I think, season five, and I think you were the first San Francisco drag queen to be on that show, which is extraordinary. I mean, I don't even know why it took so long, but um, what was that like? I, you know, I, we, as I said at the beginning, you didn't win, and I'm wondering, did your parents watch you on that show? What did they think? I don't know. No, I don't think that they did. I think that they, you know, I actually talked to my mom a lot about it, but I think that. She was just not as comfortable engaging with me um, through drag. Um, I talked, like I said, I discussed it with her and I even like, you know, let her know that some things are going to come out on the show. But I don't think that she ever fully embraced it until much later. Hmm. Are you, um, I don't know, like what, you're not the first reality TV star to run for office in California. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, is that is it, I noticed at the beginning when we brought it up, like, is, is it a thing that you now at this point are sort of hoping to leave behind because it because I'm sure it follows you. It's like such a huge name. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know about leaving it behind. I mean, I think it's it's been a valuable part of my life and I've learned so many lessons from it. And, you know, it's definitely given me a platform that has been useful. Um, but I think that it's also just so you know, I look back on it and it's like, those were really great memories. And it's also very disconnected from who I am right now and the things that I do. So I honor the memory. And also I, I also honor the fact that I've moved on. That was Honey Mahogany, head of the San Francisco Democratic Party. We're going to take a short break right now. And when we come back, we're going to hear from another rising political star, Long Beach Mayor Robert Garcia. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. 
And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, here as almost always with Marisa Lagos. And we're revisiting two of our favorite interviews of the year as we head into a new year. Next up, we're going to hear from Mayor Robert Garcia. He was born in Peru, came with parents to the U.S. when he was just five years old. And we started by asking him what he remembers about Peru and why his family left. Uh, Mayor Garcia, let's go back to the beginning. We want to talk about your life story. Uh, You were born in Peru and you came to the United States with your parents and I think uh, grandmother, grandfather um, on a visa when you were just five years old. Tell us about that journey and what you remember about Peru and why you were all leaving. Yeah, I mean, um, I think, you know, my, my, my immigration story is pretty typical. I think my family were, were in a situation in Peru at the time where there was a lot of uh, unrest in the country and there weren't a lot of jobs and it was just a difficult uh, place to be for my family. Like like a lot of folks that, that come to the U.S., they were just searching for a better life. And so my mom and dad made the decision to kind of move the family to, uh, to the United States. And uh, initially we had come on uh, temporary visas. Um, and... Uh, you know, my family made the decision that the United States would, would, would provide a better opportunity for an education and for work. And my mom, as soon as we got here, uh, uh, my mom started uh, working at a thrift shop. It was her very first job. Uh, pretty soon, she started working at a clinic. Um, my parents ended up separating when they got here, but always just really, really hardworking immigrants. And um, we just, you know, we learned to, to get by like everybody else. We wanted to become citizens. It, it, it took us a very long time. I didn't become a U.S. citizen until I was 21 years old, and my whole family became citizens around around the same time. Uh, but they worked really hard, and they worked really hard so that I could be the first in my family to go to college, so that we could uh, build a better life, you know, here in the United States. Did, did you leave and, Peru for economic reasons, or what was absolutely. the? Absolutely. I mean, it was economic reasons. It was, it was. I mean, my family. It was both economic and. Uh, the, the country was really unstable at the time. There was a domestic terrorism going on. Peru has always had a history of very difficult leadership and, diff- and difficult governments. I mean, just look at the, I think they, you know, every, almost every president that that, that that Peru has had over the last couple of decades has uh, ended up in really hot water. So it's not a, it's a, it's a tough place. Um, um, and so that's where they, they came to the U.S. And I think about, uh, we were so fortunate that at the time in the, in the 1980s, that there was actually a bipartisanship around immigration. I mean, that Ronald Reagan, a Republican president, would sign an immigration bill that created a pathway to citizenship for all of us that were in the United States. And we were able then to become U.S. citizens. Um, And so you did become a U.S. citizen. You ended up going to college. Um, I want to talk about Ronald Reagan, though, because you were registered as a Republican, and it wasn't – and it was for a while. I think you changed – uh, you, you know, you worked on behalf of George W. Bush as a college student or maybe right out of college. I mean, can you talk about why? I mean, it sounds like the, your immigration story is a big reason why you registered initially. But was politics something your family was interested in? And, and did you feel a close connection to the GOP for a long time? Yeah, my family was no. Well, no first of all, nobody in my family was political, uh, but we loved Ronald Reagan. And uh, like obsessively in my household, um, we. Viewed, what, what did that obsession look like? I mean, what, what does that mean? <laughs> it was a very typical immigrant immigrant family that, that didn't really know a lot about politics, but the man on television gave us an opportunity to become Americans. Mm-hmm. And for, if you talk to a lot of like South Americans that, that that immigrated around that time and they became citizens, they love Ronald Reagan. And everyone in my family, I remember, and I remember coming out of my immigration naturalization ceremony. And again, I wasn't. I mean, I, I was in college. And um, 
and immediately, of course, uh, registering as a Republican because that was it was wrong. I remember the big even the big image of Ronald Reagan like standee that was out at the at the fairgrounds. <laughs> and actually, in fact, it wasn't just me. Me, my mom, my dad, we all became Republicans. And um, we were very like uh, kind of like loyal to the, this uh, the, this man and and, and the party that had helped us become um, citizens. Uh, but honestly, like, really quickly, it kind of like turned sour. So I mean, kind of around college and post college, uh, we all got a little bit involved. And then um, around that time, I started realizing also that uh, that I'm gay, and my family started realizing, and we were becoming a little bit more educated about kind of what the political system looked like. Um, and, uh, and it just wasn't going to work for us. And so over the next few years, actually my whole family became Democrats. Hmm. Um, everyone in my family that was once a Republican is now a Democrat. Um, and we just really felt unwelcome. Um, and it really wasn't that Ronald Reagan party anymore. And it hasn't been for a really long time. So you switched parties around, uh, just before you ran for the city council, I think maybe a year or two before. Yeah. A few, a few, a few years before, I think, I actually think it was a decline to state, uh, for a year or so, and then became a Democrat. That's kind of like going from being straight to bisexual to gay. Well, before we, uh, yeah. Yeah. so when you're running, you're you're, you're Latino, you're uh, former Republican, you're openly gay. So which of those was the biggest problem for you, if any? Uh, uh, well, when I first, I mean, first, I, I mean, when I ran for for city council, uh, I was so I was I was you know pretty young and. Um, I uh, I think honestly the hardest part for me was being gay. Uh, mm. than anything, I mean, by then I was you know I was I was becoming uh, more liberal by the minute. You know, I, you know as I the thing about a lot of gay people, at least it was for me, is there's a lot of self hate that you have to deal with in 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 coming out and who you are and growing up, particularly me for as as, as Catholic and in this kind of conservative family. And so, you know, my coming out process aligned with like my political coming out process, because mm -hmm. you you get to a point where you realize like, OK, what, are, what do I really believe in instead of what I'm told to believe in? Uh, and who am I really as a person and who do I surround myself with? And, and you and you stop um, kind of self-hating those parts about you that and you come to grips with them. And so for me. When I came out fully as gay, I became I, be, I started you know being surrounded by my friends that were also gay. And all of us were like, this is great. This is who we really are. And, and you form your own political identity separate of what you think you are or what you're told you should be. So uh, as that happened for me, um, I, you know, became very clear, like, uh, who I was politically. And I, you know, never looked back and just really proud of, of that progress. And I think early on being gay when I ran for the council was the most difficult part. I, I would get, you know, still like nasty little letters and notes and, uh, the door slammed in front of my face. Uh, and, um, you know, and I think the former party thing was never, never really an issue. Um, uh, nor was as much me being Latino as it was being gay. Just for people like us who keep asking you about that, um, <laughs> about the Republican thing. Yeah, yeah. What, what you mentioned, I mean, coming out, how was that for your family? Were they accepted? I know you were very close to your mom and, and she passed away last year of coronavirus. COVID She's very, they're very accepting. Um, actually, uh, I, I, that's one thing I'm very grateful for. Yeah. I, the person that was the least accepting was myself. I mean, I think, I think I was the least accepting, uh, my family was great. So it took me a while to kind of figure out my own, uh, my own issues and, and, uh, 
you know, and, and, and figure out kind of the, the challenges that I went through during that time. And, uh, and but I came out of it, I think, a really strong, uh, centered, uh, happy person. And I have been, you know, for a long time. Maybe it's a good point to ask about your your mom and your your stepdad, who both passed away from COVID in the past year. What you know? What did you get from them, especially your mom? Uh, and uh, you know, how do you think it's shaped the way you think about the pandemic, if at all? Well, I mean, I certainly am a product of my mother. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I mean, my stepdad's amazing. I mean, the kindest, best person ever. But I, you know, from from uh, from like who. Who do I, who I resemble? I mean, I certainly am a product, I think, of my mom. I'm very similar to her. You know, the, the one thing that I think really got me into why I actually kind of, kind of got into education and started teaching and why I went into, into uh, government and, and, and now mayor of the, of the city is my mom really instilled in me and in my brother th- this idea of, like, giving back to your country. And she would actually, you know, she really believed in in, in – and you always give back to your country more than it's given to you and that you we earned you know we earned citizenship and we gained citizenship and that was a huge honor and that you should that's a risk that's a that's a process that um for us took such a long time that instilled in me a sense of like of helping people and, and of service and so that's the thing that they imparted on me the most they're they're you know my mom passing and greg and greg passing i think what it what that has done really for me in the last you know six months or so is it's really freed me in a way to like always do the right thing. Like, like no matter what, like I, throughout the pandemic, like going through that, it was really traumatic. It still is obviously. I mean, we were at the height of this, of the crisis and then they both uh, contracted COVID. Uh, but I don't have to ever like think about, or think about my actions. I, I, I know that during the crisis, like supporting health, supporting science, being focused on doing on, on pushing back on this craziness of, of hoax and, and, what the, and what President Trump was doing was so easy to do because that's what exactly what my mom would have done as a healthcare worker. I mean, she was a healthcare worker for 25 years. So they've given me a lot of strength and my mom would have been one of the first in line to get the vaccine because she was a healthcare worker. And so I wanna help, I wanna help save as many lives as possible. And that's also why I'm so motivated. That was Long Beach Mayor Robert Garcia. And that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, our final episode of 2021. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. And we'll be back in the new year with more fascinating guests and stories. For now, our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Happy New Year, everybody. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.